John begins this uh, third and final epistle of his, of course, with the, the phrase, the elder. It is uh, the second time he uses this phrase. He used it in Second John. And the word presbyteros, he's referring to himself not in the terms, as I mentioned last week, not in the terms of the office of um, an elder, but rather in the chronology of someone who has uh, aged and as an older. And as an older, as someone who has aged, as someone who has spent many years walking uh, in the Christian faith, he desires to pen this letter in which he brings uh, to the attention of his readers uh, a portrait. He draws a portrait of, of three specific individuals that we will call, for sake of this morning's study, the faithful, the discontent, and the good. It is interesting that he uh, carries this letter uh, under the umbrella are truth and love. Truth is mentioned some six times throughout the letter, and love or be loved is mentioned some five times. And so it is under the umbrella of truth and love that John wants to communicate to the church, uh, to every Christian that will read this letter as it was passed throughout uh, the region in which John was living at the time, and of course, throughout all time and eternity, as uh, the earth and the heavens will pass away, but the word of God will remain forever. So here it is in front of us this morning. Thousands of years later, this same letter that he penned, painting a portrait of the faithful, the discontent, and the good. He begins course, with the faithful. And there in verse uh, 1, he lets the reader know and the recipient of the letter to know that he is writing, I speak of course, there in verse 1, of the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. It is interesting that he moves right into wanting to let Gaius know that he's praying for him. And notice there in verse 2, as we had uh, read it together congregationally, he is praying for him uh, in this way, that he may prosper in all things, that he would be in good health, and that uh, his soul would prosper just as your soul prospers. At first glance, it may seem somewhat of a uh, perhaps an unchristian type prayer or maybe even a, a secular uh, prayer, you know, to pray for someone to be prosperous, prosperity, prosperity, prosperity. When <laughs> in the day in which culture in which and the region in which John is writing, the predominant uh, class of society was impoverished. Particularly, uh, most Christians were very poor. And so, is he uh, espousing a prosperity doctrine here? No. We'll see in just a moment. He also is praying that he would be in good health. And it is also true that in that time in human history that uh, medicine and doctors as we knew it, as we know it today, I mean, they were so different. They were practicing, the term practicing medicine had a whole different meaning uh, 2,000 years ago. And he tags the end of it with just as your soul prospers. I think what's necessary to understand uh, the 
theme or the, the uh, tone in which John is praying is by considering the character of Gaius that he's praying for. And he will get to his character in the next few verses. But this is not a secular prayer or an unchristian prayer at all. When you think of the fact, due to the character of this man, Gaius, that to pray that he was prospering, a key phrase, in all things, would be that Gaius would uh, be successful in the way in which Gaius was living to further the gospel. That he would be successful uh, in the impact on the lives of those that crossed his path and that he could share his relationship with Jesus. That he would be uh, prosperous in whatever business he was involved in that kept him able to share the gospel. You remember most uh, if not all, uh, ministers, servants, those carrying the gospel forward were uh, workers of some sort. They had some sort of trade or something that they did that fueled uh, their necessities for everyday life. And sharing the gospel is something that their quote-unquote job just afforded them to do. This, we do see in the New Testament, Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians, about collection for the saints and that sort of thing. But that was predominantly to, to help the churches and the Christian bodies that were in trouble financially or needed help with food and substance. This whole idea of you know passing the plate to, to pay the preacher is... Uh, something we do in our culture. And so this prayer is certainly within the confines of uh, a Christ-like prayer that Gaius would be successful in him carrying the gospel forward. That his health would remain so so that he could continue to do that not a, a doctrine of uh, health and wealth that you know, you'll never get sick, but rather that whatever the ailments Gaius would uh, find himself facing, that those ailments wouldn't stop him from being able to carry the gospel message forward and live it out in his life. And then your soul, even as your soul prospers, uh, how do you think the soul prospers this morning. There's a favorite old Maranatha song of mine. We sang it once. I don't think we've done it more than that. But it, the line in it says, I have found that your love feeds my soul. Uh, better than life, so I'll glorify you. I'll cry out your name. I have found your love feeds my soul. How do you think the soul, your soul, prospers? What is the soul? You ever thought about that? Um, we are, I've mentioned it several times, we are comprised of an inferior trinity, body, soul, and spirit. God is comprised of a uh, divine Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it is in the realm of the Spirit that man comes into contact with God. Superior Trinity, inferior Trinity. So the, the New Testament talks deeply about the soul. And many who have uh, you know, spoken or written on this subject, we believe that the soul comprises the mind, the will, and the emotion. Okay, your, your soul is, is really your mind, your will, and your emotion. And John praying for Gaius's soul to prosper, even as your soul prospers, would be that he would keep the mind of Christ. 
You know, once we come to faith, once you said yes to Jesus, no matter how aware of it you may or may not be, but the word of God is seeking to implant into you and I a new mind. A mind that is different from the way the world thinks. The word of God is seeking to implant into you the mind of Christ. So that our thinking is on the things above, not below. That our, our intellect, to whatever degree that we have it, is used to know the, the will of God. Our mind, our will. Once we came to faith in Christ, um, guess what? God says that now, your will is to be subject to his will. That your first and intentional uh, natural fortitude to go forward is now uh, submitted to the authority of God's will. And if you've ever tried to, as a Christian, and you've said, yes, Lord, I'm yours. Lord, I want you to have your way in my life. And if you haven't said that, well, it's time to do that. Because a profession of faith is, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that uh, he came to earth, he lived and uh, was crucified, buried, rose the third day, and he took the penalty of my sin. I placed my faith in him for uh, eternity. Well, that's a profession of faith. But what that also does is Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. And there's, uh, there's uh, I would say there's an infinite difference, so to speak, from the person who, who has said, uh, Jesus, be my Savior, but I'll just live my life. You see, there's a problem there. Is that for that individual that just wants to have, you know, Christ as uh, make sure I'm going to go to heaven, then there's a struggle with their will versus the will of God. And so... John knows this. Gaius knows this. It's time for us to be reminded of it, that when we came to faith, we were actually saying to God, I submit my will to you. And then, you know, the old flesh raises his ugly head every now and then. You know, just about the time you think I'm really submitted, in comes this wave of, but I want to do it my way, you know. And therein is the wrestle all life long. But our emotions are, are what so important that our, our emotion isn't the uh, train engine driving our lives. And we talked about this on a Wednesday night. But our emotions are to be yielded to and submitted to and driven by fact, the fact of the word of God. If we put emotion in front of the fact of the word of God, well, sometimes we feel like we're saved. Sometimes we don't feel like we're saved. Sometimes we feel like God is near. Sometimes we don't feel like God is near. But what does God say in his word? The fact is, is he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The fact is, is that he is near to those who are of a contrite and humble heart. And so to place those emotions where they belong behind fact. Fact is supposed to go fact, faith, emotion. So anyway... Kind of a side note there, but that's what John is praying for this man, Gaius, who, as he gets into some of the character of Gaius, we see that this prayer is uh, tremendously right on target. Verse 3, uh, John says, I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as 
you walk in truth. And notice that he makes two declarations there. One that uh, the truth of the gospel is in Gaius and that Gaius also walks in that truth. Um, What does it mean? This struck me. What does it mean to have the truth in you? What does it mean to walk in the truth? Uh, But notice there in the verse, it said that brethren came and testified. They came and testified of the truth that that was in him and the truth that uh, he walked out. To testify is a very powerful thing. For you and I as Christians, it is, and in the world, a testimony to testify is a very powerful thing. Webster's Dictionary says that in a judicial proceeding, to testify is to make a solemn declaration under oath for the purpose of establishing or making proof of some act to a court, to give testimony in a cause depending uh, before a tribunal. And so here we have these brethren coming and and testifying to the fact that the truth of the gospel is in Gaius and the truth of the gospel is being walked out in Gaius' life. Maybe this morning you're unfamiliar, but I know years back, um, a couple of the churches I belonged to, we used to have like Sunday night testimony night. And uh, don't raise your hand, but, you know, how many of you recognize that phrase? Testimony night. And you'd gather and there'd be a little time of worship prayer. And then uh, the pastor would say, all right, uh, uh, this is testimony night. We want to hear your testimony. Who's got a testimony? And a hand would go up, you know, and uh, sister so-and-so would stand and start giving her testimony. And, oh, thank you, sister. Who else? And brother so-and-so would stand and give his testimony. Now, Remember, to give a testimony uh, of your faith in Christ, it's an interesting thing. If you've ever studied the Apostle Paul in uh, Galatians 1, in verses 13 through 21 is is a a tremendous grid of of how a testimony really should go because it, it should be this. It should be equal parts of before I came to Christ, my encounter with Christ, and now what Christ is doing in my life. Equal parts. Before I came to Christ, my encounter with Christ, and now what Christ is doing in my life. And I remember years back, some of those testimony nights, sister so-and-so would go on about how long she walked in the world. And then there would be this, and then I met Jesus, and now everything's wonderful. Thank you, sisters. You sit down, you know. And I don't know if that means anything to you guys, but if you ever have the opportunity to give your testimony to someone, remember this, that what we did previously should not be the focus. Our encounter with Christ and what God is doing in our lives now should have equal emphasis and importance as we share. And here these men come and they testify that the truth of the gospel is in Gaius. In other words, there's a depth in him. If you were to sit down and speak with him, uh, there would be a depth of understanding that he's able to communicate verbally about how Christ Is that work in his life? And then if you stepped back and just watched him live his life through a week or a month or whatever, you would say, and this guy's walking it out. Can you say that this morning? Is that your testimony this morning? That the truth of the gospel is in you as well as being walked out in your life. Well, we see here that John says, uh, regarding Gaius, he says, I have no greater joy, in verse 4, than to hear, notice, 
that my children walk in truth. Very possible that Gaius was one of John's own converts, that John may have led Gaius to the Lord at some previous time. And John expresses that, that tremendous truth, no greater joy than to know that my, or to hear, that my children walk in truth. How many of you are Christian parents this morning? And as a parent who has come to Christ and you see the intensity of the insane world in which we live in right now, and how easy it is for our offspring, our children, to get caught up in the multiple different uh, forms of ideology, the different kinds of schools of thought. And I've talked with several parents that are here right now and joined them in praying that our physical children would walk in the truth of the gospel. And what a joy it is when they do. I mean, it is like, whoo, there's, I think it's only second unto, you know, leading somebody to faith in Christ is when you see your own kids walking in the truth of the gospel, getting it, wrapping themselves around it, and in their own way seeking the Lord. But John here also brings to us the the fact that at times there are spiritual children in our lives. Someone that you've shared Christ with. Someone that you've led to faith in Christ. Someone that you've talked about the work of God to in your your, uh, crossing of their life path. And, you know, time goes on and then you hear later on that they're walking in the truth. Uh, there's a family up north, I believe they're in the Oregon area, uh, tremendous family, I'll leave their name out of it, but uh, they were here for just a short time, some 20 years ago or so, Five or four or five different children at the time, and uh, I think the husband was uh, in military service, and they, they were just starting to get to know the Lord as they plowed through our doors. And we had the opportunity to spend some Wednesday nights with them and some Sundays. Forget exactly how long it might have been, half a year or so. And, you know, the hope was is that as you're sitting there this morning, faithfully listening, thank you, But as you're sitting there, I'm trusting and hoping that something of the word of God is taking root in your heart. That's my only hope. I have nothing else to share with you except who God is, right, from the word. And so one thing led to another, and boom, they were were out of here. They had to move. They go up north. Didn't hear from them for about 10 or plus years. And then all of a sudden we get this Christmas card. And they're in a fellowship. Both the parents are serving. The kids are walking with God. And me and Sherry just drop our jaw and go, how did that happen, you know? It's so such a joy. And it's nothing to do with us, but it's the work of God when someone takes it and runs with it. And our hope is that you're taking it and you're running with it. And that he is changing your life because of your pursuit of him. John knew the joy. And there's no greater joy. He he speaks of Gaius' character here, and we'll move on. Uh, We'll have to move quickly here. In verse 5, he says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for the strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church, and if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles, 
And we, therefore, ought to receive such that we may be fellow workers for the truth. And here he gets to the character of Gaius, that he is faithful. Faithful in doing whatever he does for brethren and strangers. And that he recognized uh, that Gaius had a love for not the physical church, not the building, but the body of Christ. He had a love for the body of Christ and that he was willing to receive others and send them out. A portrait of the faithful. John now gets to a portrait of the discontent. In verse 9 we read, John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, pratting against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. And so here now, John paints a portrait of what we will call the discontent. The letter that he's speaking of that he wrote to the church more than likely is his second epistle, either his first or second. And he's speaking how he wrote that to them. But he gets to this uh, drawing the picture of uh, this Diotrephes. You might note that it's a Gentile name. He had a Greek background. And we will see in the ways in which that Diotrephes was discon uh, discontent, this discontentment, it, it bled through his life. It, it colored his character in sad in many ways. Three of which I note there first in verse 9 is that Diotrephes loved to have the preeminence. In other words, he always wanted to be the center of attention. So much so that he would uh, make himself the center of attention by flexing his um, spiritual muscles of authority. Did you know that this word preeminence is only used two times in the entirety of the New Testament? One is here, and the second is in Colossians 1.18, when Paul said that Jesus is to have the preeminence. He said, Colossians 1.17 and 18, speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, He is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. The gathering of the body of believers and the focus of the body of believers should always be on Jesus, beloved. It should always be about Jesus. And I, I trust that that's something you gather by coming here often, that our emphasis is to seek to put Jesus forward and ourselves behind. He's the one who's to be the, have front attention. And what we see in Diotrephes is that he was substituting Christ by putting himself in the center of attention. The second way in which he was discontent, you could say, that his deeds, there in the uh, first part of verse 10, uh, John says that Diotrephes, uh, his deeds, pratting against us with malicious words. In other words, speaking against the appointed leaders within the collective church of the day and at the time. 
And so instead of sitting down and seeking to have a conversation with those that were leaders about his desires or his hopes for how the gospel is to be lived out and furthered, Diotrephes, in contrast, would speak against the leaders with malicious words. And there is nothing more poisonous than to have rumor or harsh words about leadership in church begin to kind of flutter through. It destroys the unity in the body of Christ and it starts to tear apart the work. And why was this the case in, in Diotrephes' life? Obviously, he was embittered. There was a, a root of bitterness in his heart. The author of Hebrews talks about be careful that you don't let bitterness against someone as a Christian, you know, take up residence there. Now, maybe you can identify this morning, maybe in your life as a Christian, you've been offended or hurt or something hard has happened to you and you want to blame the individual and that blame begins to fester and it becomes, you become embittered toward a person. Well, if you're a Christian, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, we're told that we're to be careful lest any one of us fall short of the grace of God and lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and that by a root of bitterness, many are defiled. It can destroy me. It can destroy you. And the resolve for a bitter heart is by allowing ourselves to remember how Gracious God has been to us in forgiving us and to remove that bitterness. But Diotrephes was not content. He must have been embittered. And we see thirdly that he would even forbid those who wanted to hear the other leaders, he would forbid them to do so and excommunicate them out of his church or out of his uh, gathering. I mean, a, a pure flex of, of control. He was a, absolutely a control freak, for lack of a better word. And yet, one day he'll stand before the Lord and answer for his actions and his treatment of other Christians in the body of Christ. Be careful, brother and sister, that discontentment, whether it comes from wanting more of the attention or a root of bitterness in your heart or wanting to control the things be careful that that doesn't feed a discontent attitude. Paul writes in Philippians 4.11, he says, not that I speak in regard to need. He says, for I have learned to be content in all things. It, it's something the Holy Spirit can teach us to do, is to be content Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 8, he said, having food and clothing with these things, we shall be content. Are you content this morning? Did you walk in these doors content? You see, that's the thing. We're clothed. We have food. We have shelter. Yeah, there are things we want to do or accomplish in life, but... At the root, are you content? Because it's, it's something the Holy Spirit would have us as a body of believers learn to remain in. Hebrews 13.5, let your conduct be without covetousness, but be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Diotrephes. Portrait of discontent. In closing this morning, 
Paul then turns his attention to the good. And he, he kind of summarizes Diotrephus' life. He says in verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. In other words, they're blinded. But he says there, in verse 12, he says, Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. He turns his attention to this third portrait, this third individual, Demetrius. Interesting, his name also is a Greek uh, name. It means belonging to Demeter. Now, who is Demeter? Well, Demeter was the goddess of agricultural and rural life in the Greek culture. So his name means that he belongs to a pagan god, but guess what? Demetrius had gotten saved, and now he belonged to the one true God. And because of that fact in his life, he had a good testimony. Others could see that in his life, he was no longer property of, by reason of his name, of a goddess of agriculture and rural life. He was now property or the servant of Jesus Christ. I think we should all tag that. Wouldn't the state of California love that name? Art, a servant of Jesus Christ. <laughs> State of California. Sorry, I don't know where that comes from other than our state fights a lot of liberal ideas. I think we should all tag servant of Jesus Christ after our names. Don't you? You can say amen. Yeah. All right. So there were two Demetriuses in Scripture. Uh, the first was a silversmith in Ephesus. The second was this Demetrius. And I'll close with this quote by Bill Lockyer in his book, uh, Men of the Bible. He states this. He says, This man of God had the testimony of all men of the truth and of John also. It is one of the finest recommendations of the gospel when a Christian impresses and attracts those around him by the reality of his or her life. And this was the case with Demetrius. These insights bring us to the point of our meeting this morning, and that is, is that, you know, I'll confess, I see portions of myself in each one. I don't know about you, but at times, I, like, I think I am faithful, but at times I am not. And I, yet I know that Jesus remains faithful even when I am not. And it reminds me of my need to remember him often. At times, I know I am very content. I endeavor to learn to be content as the Holy Spirit would teach me to be content with such things as I have. But at times I wrestle with discontentment like any one of you. And I'm reminded again of my need to remember Christ and what the Spirit of God wants to teach me on a daily basis. At times I would trust that maybe my testimony of of how I'm living my life is good. I hope, you know, it's, it's only supposed to please God, not necessarily others, but that others, as others see my life, hopefully it would be a good testimony. But at times, I'm sure there are times that it's not. And maybe the same is true with you. Perhaps you see portions of both in your life, and that's the joy of coming to this table again this morning.
remembering that Jesus died to remind us, well, he died because a propitiation, a payment for the penalty of mankind's sin was necessary to please God. And so in his death, he took upon himself every missing of the mark you and I have ever made, will make, or are making. He took that upon himself so that by faith in his blood, paid for on the cross at Calvary, that we could stand before Almighty God and God the Father would look down at us through the nail-scarred hands of Jesus to your life and mine, full of mistakes, both past, some present, and some will be in the future. And he looks at your life in faith under the blood of Christ and says, justified. He says, forgiven. He says, this is about what I've done not what you do. And that's why we come. And that's why we remember him. And we leave from this place having remembered him afresh, letting the Spirit of God paint its portrait, his portrait of our life. Will you join me in prayer and I'll invite the men to come forward to, to distribute the elements. Again, this cup and wafer are for those who have given their life to Christ. If you have not done that, I would encourage you to just let them pass this morning. Uh, or, better yet, right where you are, you can invite Christ into your life to ask him to forgive you of your sin and to become your Savior and your Lord. They are a representation of his body and his blood, and they are meaningless to the person who has not come to faith in Christ but they are everything to you and I who have. The men will distribute the elements and then we'll pray uh, and we'll take the uh, bread first and we'll take the cup second. But will you join me in a brief word of prayer? Lord, we, we thank you for John's faithfulness to paint a picture of three individuals within the body of Christ and that they are there for us to learn from and to gain insight from, to see if there's a part of any one of their lives that applies to ours, Lord. And to have us remember why you have come. Lord, as we prepare our hearts for this time of communion, we ask you to work a fresh work to draw us close into your bosom. To remind us of your great love and of your great sacrifice. Lord, we ask that you be honored in in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll sing this song together as the men pass out the elements. And I know a place, a wonderful place, where a
Bible tells us that on the night before uh, Jesus was to be crucified, and it would be the same night that he would be betrayed, that he gathered those that he had poured out his life into over the last three years of his public ministry, and that in that very intimate setting with just a very few whom he loved greatly, he instituted what we now call communion. Luke tells us that he took bread and he broke it, giving thanks for it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. He said, take it and eat of it. And as you do, remember me. Let's partake together. So faithful you are, Lord, that you give your body, suffer, hang on that cross beaten, flesh torn, blood dripping down, all because of love. that you love us so much. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. It overwhelms us this morning, Lord, and it fills us with an unspeakable gratitude. We thank you.
The Gospels tell us that in the same manner, he then took the cup, giving thanks for it again. He said, this is the cup of a new covenant of my blood, which is shed for the remission of sin, taking away. He invited them then, as the Spirit of God would invite us now, he said, to take it, to drink it, and as you do, remember me. Let's partake together. So precious is that blood, Lord. So thorough, so efficient, that it wipes away every stain. That as it covers our lives, we are whiter than snow in the eyes of your Father. And so this morning, in our taking again of this bread and this cup, we remember you, Lord, what you've done for us that we might know you, that we might know your Father, that we might know eternity in heaven. Thank you, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone said...